This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, this is Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to our 2015 season. We're very excited. We have a lot of fantastic shows coming your way. Before I tell you about this week's guests, let me just give you a little update. We've been on hiatus uh, over the holidays, running a few repeats. If you missed them, uh, we had Jeff Gunlock, Jim Chanos, Mark Cuban, and now we're starting with a whole new run of new shows beginning uh, this weekend, which is January 10th, 2015. Before I tell you the details about this week's guest, let me just tell you a little bit about what we have in store for you. Some fantastic shows uh, recording. Next weekend is some guy named William Gross, formerly of PIMCO, now with Janice. Uh, we spoke, or will we? by the time you hear this, we will have spoken for a couple of hours. We've been going back and forth about this show. A lot of really interesting stuff. Enough material that... It might even end up being a two-hour show. Uh, so that's fascinating stuff. Check out that next week. I'm heading out to Seattle to interview Howard Marks of Oak Tree Capital, really a super value investor and another phenomenal fixed-income investor. Uh, Cliff Asnes of AQR is on our schedule, as is Jim McCann of 800 Flowers, which... In response to a lot of requests, hey, I love the interviews and I'm learning a lot about finance and investing, but what about things in non-financial business? So Jim is somebody we've known for a couple of years, and he's a really fascinating character who essentially took a single florist shop and turned it into this fantastic, successful, publicly traded company. We have a lot of other people queued up from outside the world of finance. I think that's going to be really interesting, including people uh, from the arts, and, and that could be a really intriguing conversation. Before I babble too long, let me tell you about this week's guest. It's a special youth edition of Masters in Business. Patrick O'Shaughnessy, author of Millennial Money, all about how young people can make a fortune courtesy of their 50-year investment horizon. You know, we tend to think of the youth today as being really disadvantaged. They came of age in the midst of a horrible uh, financial crisis. They're burdened with lots of student loans and, and college debt. There aren't that many great job opportunities. Patrick takes a very contrarian position, which is the youth have the single greatest advantage uh, on their side, and that's time. You get to compound returns for 40 or 50 years. Most people don't really start investing seriously into their 40s or 50s, uh, or at least that's what Patrick says. And by that time, you've given up so many decades of compounding, you've missed out on so much, that you're actually at a disadvantage. Even if you're making very little money and putting very little aside, you should still do it, says Patrick in his book, Millennial Investing, because of the miracle of, of compounding and what it does to your returns, uh, essentially you can start later and put more money away and you'll end up with about as half as much as someone who starts early, someone who starts in their 20s. So be sure and check that out. Uh, with no further ado, let me introduce Patrick O'Shaughnessy, principal at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management and author of the book, Millennial Money. 
This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week I have a special guest who is unique in two ways. First, his name is Patrick O'Shaughnessy. He's the author of Millennial Money, How Young Investors Can Build a Fortune. So this is a special youth-oriented version of Masters in Business. But we have a couple of firsts with Patrick. Uh, Patrick is... You were born in 85, right? I was born in 85. You're 30 yet? Almost 30? Just about to turn 30 in April. So by far, you are our youngest guest ever on the show. Well, I'm honored. And second, (laughs) you're the first guest who is the offspring of a previous guest. That's also correct. We we had um, Yale Hirsch and his son Jeff, but they were on together. So you're the first first official progeny of a prior... uh, prior guest. So that, that makes you unique. A little background uh, about Patrick, um, obviously born in 1985, not quite 30, undergraduate at Notre Dame, surprisingly a degree in philosophy, not finance, but you ended up becoming a chartered financial analyst. How did you find your way to finance? So my interest in markets in general and, and finance even more generally really comes through human psychology. I studied philosophy with sort of a, an unofficial minor in psychology just because I'm interested in how people act and how people think. And I think that the stock market represents probably the most interesting intersection of all the most interesting disciplines. So I, I sort of backed into it through psychology. Um, and that's what got me interested. And then from there, I went the, you know, the more traditional route, studying accounting through the CFA, et cetera. Uh, but it's people that got me interested in markets. And, and it certainly doesn't hurt that your father is James O'Shaughnessy, who wrote a highly regarded book, What Works on Wall Street, and runs the firm um, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, where you're a principal. I've been extremely fortunate. Um, and, and I say that not so much because I have a father who's a well-known investor, but more because of how he encouraged me as a young person really just to love learning. Um, it was never about this ratio or that ratio. It was really just about loving to read, loving to investigate. Uh, so that's the reason I'm so lucky, but yeah, lucky for a lot of reasons. So, so let's talk about you as a young person, because yeah. the theme today is going to be the advantages of youth, sure. the the things that young people have that they may not even realize that work so strongly in their benefit, and who better to discuss it than someone who is, A, not quite 30, and B, wrote a book about what millennials should be doing with their money. And the funny thing about that is when people think about this generation, the thought process is... They're living in their parents' basement. They don't have a lot of economic opportunity. Jobs aren't plentiful. Uh, It's tough to get by. And you took an extremely contrarian position, and you basically said, hey, you'll never have a better time to invest in your life than when you're in your 20s and 30s, and I'm going to write a book about it. Yeah, you know, this is true of young people in general, but even more so of the millennial generation, just because of what they've witnessed, three catastrophic collapses in the housing market, in the stock market. Um, And we are, as people, tend to be once burned, twice shy. And so we've got this very negative view of the stock market. My goal with the book was to sort of reverse how people think about risk and make them realize that if you've got 40 years ahead of you, you have huge potential if you start very young. A dollar might turn into $17. Whereas if you wait till 40, like most people do, that same dollar on average turns into just about $5. So So, so let's talk about those three crises. You had the dot-com crises, you had the housing collapse, then we had the financial crisis. How has that impacted the psychology 
of of your peer group of the millennials? Well, it's really part of our biological heritage. There's a, one of my favorite writers is the anthropologist Jared Diamond, who spent a lot of time with uh, indigenous people in Papua New Guinea. And when he was traveling with them, one night they were setting up camp and he wanted to set up a camp below a tree. And they said, absolutely not. We won't do it. And he was surprised because the tree was fine. It was alive. It hadn't begun to rot or anything, but they wouldn't do it. And he realized that they take all sorts of extreme precautions against even very low probability events. And he called this tendency constructive paranoia. Human beings are very sensitive to even low probability losses because negative things have a big impact on our survival. Now, that's great in a primitive setting, but in the markets, the exact opposite is true. We say better safe than sorry, which is how we tend to act biologically. But in markets, typically, the safer you feel, the sorry you'll be in the future. So what works on the savannah doesn't work on Wall Street. Absolutely. And and that's just the way we're programming. We've seen three catastrophic things that signal to us danger when you look at markets. So that makes millennials more risk averse, and they tend to run very low stock exposure and absurd levels of cash in their portfolios. They do. And some of the most recent surveys show 50% or more in cash for 25-year-olds, which is just insane because of the power of inflation. You know, that the value of that cash will slowly get stripped away over time, whereas they have very little in stocks, which over the long over four decades have always been, the, you know, the most remunerative successful asset class. Never, never a negative um, 20-year rolling period of equities in the U.S., um, you look at Japan, that's really the exception, isn't it? Yeah, internationally, and there's, some, there's some extreme examples like Japan, Germany, some of the World War II countries, but equities over the longer term after inflation have been safer than the more traditional bonds and cash. Compounding, you use the famous example of the grain of rice on a uh, chessboard. Yes. Describe the advantage that a 25-year-old has if they're looking at a 40 or even 50-year investment horizon. Well, the thing about compounding that makes it hard to take advantage of is all the great benefit happens at the tail end of life, not in the beginning. So if you're investing $1,000 now, you might only make a few hundred dollars in returns. But the same rate of return way later in life represents much bigger sums. My favorite example of this is Warren Buffett. Everyone knows him as the most successful investor out there, um, You know, $60 billion net worth. He was not a billionaire until he turned 60 years old. And his superpower was that he started when he was 11 years old buying shares and the power of compounding. Now, he was a great investor, but the power of compounding was what led to his great results through time. The same is true for young people today. Small amounts invested now can result in huge sums in our 50s and 60s. Patrick, in the book, you discuss three factors that are required in order for any young investor to succeed. And those factors are be different, go global, and get out of your own way. Yeah. Let, let's discuss those in reverse order. Sure. Let's start with get out of your own way. Sure. I think this is actually probably the most important of the three because strategy is one thing, but if you don't stick to your strategy, you will be in trouble in the long term. Investors tend to be their own worst enemy, reacting emotionally at exactly the wrong times, both in times of greed and in times of panic. So the key really, I think, is to get out of your own way by making your investing program as automatic as possible, meaning money from your paycheck or bank account is just automatically invested, whether it be in your 401k, retirement account, or just regular brokerage account, and invested for you without you having to take action. Because the more opportunity we have to intercede in the portfolio, the worse our results are are likely to be. There's been a, and it may have even been your dad who on the show told the story that when Fidelity did a review of accounts, yeah. the accounts that had been the most successful ones that people essentially had forgotten about yeah. and just left to the left them alone. 
And those were the highest returning uh, portfolios in, in their whole book of business. It's quite a, amazing. You can, you can overcome all this by just making your investments automatic. And for most people, that's the easy solution. So 401k, it's really easy. How, yep. Is there a way to make it automatic with just a, a, a regular brokerage account? Sure. You can set up with almost every company with whom you might have an account. You can set up, set up an automatic transfer from your bank checking account into your brokerage account. Uh, pretty easily, and and that's probably the the most basic and effective way to do it so on one, top of the four. So once the money hits, how does that get disposed into a portfolio? So there are certain services that do it for you. Um, this is kind of the the cutting edge of the meeting of Silicon Valley and and Wall Street, where there's software that they've built that just automatically handles it all for you. There's a number of companies that do it. Uh, the biggest of them is a company called Wealthfront. Sure. Um, uh, there, there are a number of other great options that people can research, but they handle everything for you once the money's there, and then you don't have to do anything. That's that's great. I, I know Betterment is a competitor there. Yep. It's per, personal capital. Yep. There's about a dozen of those. We have our own version of it. Right. There, there's a lot of different companies that do that. By taking the human element out of it, you're removing the emotion, you're removing the people being in the way of their own interests. Yes, an emotionless investing process will always be better than one that involves too much people. So now let's go to the second point, which is go global, obviously yes. referring to the home country bias that we see all all over the entire investing world. Yeah, I call it portfolio patriotism. It's this okay. it's this tendency <laughs> to prefer companies whose CEOs we know, whose products and services we use and so on. Uh, we just like the familiar and we don't like investing in companies that we've never heard of. Unfortunately, that ignores a wealth of opportunities abroad. Uh, and very often, some of the best opportunities and the cheapest opportunities are outside of the U.S. Uh, so I encourage investors to build a very global, diversified portfolio because there are countless examples of individual country stock markets. Japan is probably the most current and, and extreme example. Having long periods of time where they do badly, but an equal-weighted, balanced global portfolio has, has really never had a 20- or a 30-year run of negative performance, even after inflation. Um, so I think that a balanced global approach is better than just buying stocks in the country in which you live. We're speaking with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, author of Millennial Money. Now, the third point, or really the first one in your list, is probably the most challenging one, Yes, which is similar to the Apple slogan, think different, hmm. you're saying be different. Yes. And, and this is really a point that is addressed specifically at those trying to outperform the market. It's a hard task to do. And for most investors, if I met one on the street, I would say that simple index funds are a very good option to get started. For those that are interested in, in owning individual stocks rather than just owning the entire market, I think that there are certain ways that if you are consistently different in these key ways, you can outperform the market over the long term. These are things like buying stocks at very cheap valuations, buying higher quality companies that themselves earn strong returns on their investments, buying companies that are definitely not meddling with the books, that have real cash earnings, not quality earnings, high not... quality earnings. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also important to look at recent trends in the market over the last, say, three to nine months. Companies that are the falling daggers sometimes are best avoided. So if you can buy high quality, cheap companies that the market is just beginning to notice and do that very consistently through time, that has been a strategy that, historically speaking, has worked very well, better than the overall market. The key is that you have to be different. And we're going to come back to the checklist that you've created in yes. order to be different. But when you end up taking these three bullet points, um, get out of your own way, go global, and be different, 
what do those portfolios end up looking like? So depending on whether or not the investor is is choosing to be very different than the market, it'll end up looking quite distinct. You might have always global holdings because that's a key part of it. But typically, if we're a young person, the vast majority in equities, you might have imbalances in terms of the market sectors. You might own a lot of consumer stocks, but no energy stocks, something like that. You have to have a willingness to look very different and not care what's going on in the market, only care what's going on not in your portfolio. Not be a slave to the benchmark or the S&P 500. Exactly. And you know, 2014 was a hard year. The S&P 500 beat everything else. Um, so you, you really have to have that intestinal fortitude to ignore uh, when you're losing to the overall market. Uh, but but the combine the combined portfolio will still be well diversified globally, and within the U.S. side of things, what sort of names are we do you tend to look at? I know they rotate on a regular basis. Yeah. But you're really talking about high quality companies at a relatively low valuation. Yeah. One of I'll give one example that's pretty representative of these ideas, which is Seagate Technology. It's a hard drive manufacturer. Um, we've owned it for about five years, and it's been one of the best performing holdings in, in our firm's history. It was a classic value story where everyone said it's going out of business. They're toast. Hard, hard drives over, is, right. is, is dinosaur technology. It's all moving to the cloud. Um, this, this industry is going out of business. Super cheap valuations, high quality earnings. They were aggressively repurchasing their own shares. They were investing in themselves. Um, those are all great things to look for in a company, and that would be a kind of a common profile of a name that, that we like. Let's talk about one of the biggest trends in investing today, the idea of active versus passive indexing. Yes. In the book, you start out by saying, you know, if nothing else, passive indexing is fine, but I think you could do better. Yeah. Uh, address that if you would. Sure. I think that, you know, all the all the original arguments in the book trying to compel young investors to get going are all based on just owning the overall market. Simple passive indexes that you don't have to do anything. You just own a slice of global business. I think that that is a great way to get started. And for the average investor, that's probably the best solution. They don't have to think about it much. They don't have to spend time researching companies, anything like that. I do think that for the sort of the second level investor that wants to get deeper into the weeds, that there are ways to beat the market. You just have to do your research and do your work and stick to some really proven key principles. So my my opinion is kind of twofold. It depends on the individual investor. For most people I know that aren't in this business, I advocate simple passive index funds because they're cheap. We know they do very well over time. They have good tax-friendly returns, um, and you don't have to know much about the markets to participate in their growth. You're just buying into the global business universe and letting it do its thing and, and getting out of the way. Uh, yeah. All of a sudden, you've got millions of people working for you effectively, and that's that's kind of a powerful concept and, and not trying to pick which the winners will be, just participating in the entire thing. But- there are some issues you have with passive investing, yes. which are similar to issues that Rob Arnott has raised and um, your dad has raised and other people. And it has to do with the problem with selecting stocks based on market cap weighting. Yeah. So we, we think of market cap as a factor like any others, like price to earnings or something simple like that. This is a, an interesting study. If you broke the market into 10 groups, equal groups of names, so let's say there's 3,000 stocks or so in the market, 300 names in each group, and the division was based solely on their size. So the number one group was the 300 biggest stocks, number 10, the 300 smallest. And you ran that simulation over the last 50 years. The only really interesting thing you would find is that the biggest group, the 300 largest stocks or so, have underperformed the rest of stocks by between 2 and 3% per year on an annualized basis. So names that have done the best over the long term go on to actually underperform. 
we would argue that the index-based strategy is just to buy big cap stocks and that right. that doesn't make much sense, that you can do better from a strategy perspective where indexes have it right is how disciplined and consistent they are. Talk a little bit about this, something in the book I found fascinating, which is only buy stocks with the letter C yeah. <laughs> as an example of what one of the flaws in cap-weighted indexes. Yeah. So if all you did every year was buy every name in the market that started with the letter C, honestly, you could do it with just about any letter and the result would be the same. You would outperform the market on paper. And the reason for that is that it skews you away from just the biggest names and right. just creates sort of a random sample of companies uh, that, that tended to actually do better than the biggest stocks overall. So kind of a funny exercise. It is. Certainly wouldn't advocate anyone do that. Uh, but but it's, it's powerful to show that just a random sampling will do better, an equal-weighted random sampling than, than just a market index on paper. I, I, I suspect we're going to see an ETF in the not too different future <laughs> called ETFB, ETFC, ETFD. Just just stocks of those letters because someone will someone will end up um, buying it. So so now let's talk a little bit about when you're not buying indexes, when you're putting together a portfolio. How do you deal with the behavioral issues that you mentioned throughout the books? throughout the book in terms of how investors get in their own way? So really, we think the solution is to make your approach completely model-based, meaning you design a model that selects stocks for you based on proven key ideas, attributes that common stocks that have been successful share, and then you stick to that model through thick and thin. And I can promise you, because value stocks are a big component of what we do, that very often you'll look at the names coming out of your model and say, wait a minute, <laughs> this can't be right. This stock is terrible. It's the Seagate technology of five years ago. Uh, you know, it's the leisure stocks of five years ago when people said no one's ever going to do anything for fun again. They're just battening down the hatches. So it forces you to own some uncomfortable stocks, which is why we think you just need to take humans out of it. Make it a model-based approach only. That's so funny. My my favorite war story about reaction to stocks, when the first Apple iPod came out, I've been a Mac fanboy for forever. Yeah. I got my hands literally the first week the iPod came out. And, oh, I get it. The Sony Walkman for the digital era, this is going to be huge. Apple at the time was 15 bucks, 13 cash. I showed this to a dozen people. The reaction was uniformly... Dude, what are you talking about? They're Crickets. going out of business. Oh, oh, and I learned that when you get that oh reaction, pay attention because it means all the worst part of the stock is out of the price, and all that's left is either out of business or a lot of upside. With Apple, it turned out to be a lot of upside. I love the phrase: "The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek," and that is often true in the stock market, as it was with Apple. In our earlier segment, we discussed a variety of different factors that go into approaching markets correctly as a young investor. But you took it a step further, what you said, second-level investing, beyond indexing, and you created a checklist for identifying stocks that have five key characteristics that you think make for the best sort of portfolio that people can, in fact, do themselves. Yes. Yeah, so, so we can go through each of the five, which I think have very compelling reasons each. The first is that you want companies that are very oriented towards their shareholders. What I mean by that is they send lots of cash back to equity and debt stakeholders in the company. They're so paying, that means retiring debt, buying back shares, and issuing dividends? And paying dividends, yes. And so you, you want to favor those stocks and you want to avoid stocks that are just issuing a ton or raising a ton of new capital. So secondary equity offerings, you know, a lot of new debt 
those tend to be bad signs historically. What about the companies that generate a lot of stock options and have to issue stocks to cover that? How does that fit into this? So you got to make sure you look at the net number. So you want to look at total buybacks and total issuance and net those numbers out against one another to, to account for any sort of issuance that's for stock options. All right, that would, that so, would be a bad thing, issuance for stock options. So shareholder yield greater than 5% is uh, the first bullet point. Second bullet point, return on invested capital. Yeah, so the key idea here is that this is sort of a measure of a company's quality. You want to invest in a company whose own investments are, are yielding great returns. So if a company takes its cash that it's raised through equity and debt, makes investments in property, plant equipment, whatever its investments are, depending on its business, you want businesses that are great at earning high returns because those filter through to investors. Uh, so a, a return on invested capital that's very high relative to competitors has historically been a good sign. So you want to focus on companies with good return on capital. All right. And the third bullet point, operating cash flow greater than reported profits. Yeah. So the bottom line number that everyone still pays attention to is earnings, EPS. Uh, that's the number that makes headlines. Far fewer investors are focused on real operating cash flows. We want real, not manipulated earnings. And there are a lot of ways to make earnings look better than they are. Maybe it's growing your accounts receivables or, or, or messing with your inventories or just blowing up your asset base. There's lots of ways to do it. We want to focus on companies that have real strong, consistent operating cash flows uh, that are at least as high as their earnings, hopefully a lot higher. So so how are you measuring that? How are you looking at actual cash flows? So it's very simple. Uh, on the statement of cash flows, there's three different kinds. You just look at the operating ones, ones that co are coming in on a net basis as a result of the company's normal business activities. And you compare that with a company's reported net income. A simple check is just to say, we want companies' cash flow higher than their earnings. This would help you miss the Enrons of the world, the Adelphias, the WorldComs, all of which would have would not have passed this Do, test. Doesn't make sense to have earnings higher than cash flow. It doesn't make sense because that means it's coming from something like accounts receivable. Your your earnings it's engineered. Are, it's, it's not in, real. It may not be fully engineered, but it means that the earnings are not coming from real cash. It's coming from cash that you think you'll receive in the future. All right. So that was bullet point checklist number three. Yep. Number four: enterprise value to free cash flow. Less than 10x. How does that work? Yeah, that's a fancy way of saying you want to buy cheap stocks. Okay. You want to buy companies trading at low multiples. I like free cash flow. You can use earnings. You can use book value. You can use sales. They all work. The important point is that the less you pay for stocks, the more you will earn from them in the long term. Very easy to say, much harder to do in practice because it often points you towards some contrary bets. Uh, places mm -hmm. that the market is worried about. But value is key. If there's any one lesson from this list that people take away, it's to focus on paying as little as possible for earnings, for cash flow, for sales, et cetera. Let's look at the last factor, which is really kind of interesting. Uh, you describe it as a momentum factor, but I'm going to say it's not a momentum factor. It's really a avoid dogs factor. Because what you your bullet point is, your checklist point is, six-month momentum that's in the top three quarters of the market, which is a polite way of saying, hey, avoid that bottom quarter. Yeah, there's there's honestly no special magic to that particular cutoff point. The real key is that we know from market history, companies that have been doing the absolute worst over the last six months or so tend to continue to be dogs for the next year. And that by avoiding those companies, you can avoid what people often call value traps, um, things like that. Wait for the wait for the trend to be established a little bit more before buying in. That can be a nice addition to just about any strategy. We're speaking with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, author of Millennial Money. 
describing the checklist that young investors should use in order to put together their own active portfolios if they already have a passive portfolio and want to take it to the next level. So let, let's go over all five of these. Shareholder yield greater than 5%, return on invested capital greater than 30%, operating cash greater than earnings, enterprise value to cash flow as less than 10x, um, and then six-month momentum in the top three quarters. This is really a version of, of the great Warren Buffett quote, which is, I'd rather buy a wonderful business at a fair price than a fair business at a wonderful price. This isn't rocket science. These are common known, <laughs> common sense investing principles just put into a rigorous model. And they work very well together. You're buying shareholder-friendly companies, high-quality earnings, uh, very attractive prices in this case, and the market isn't selling them off you know, in droves over the, in the recent past. So let me push back a little bit at this. So sure. this sounds a little complicated, although you're saying if, uh, if I subscribe to AAII, I could have most of this automated. What does this generate? What sort of output? How often do I have to change this? Is This is not exactly a set and forget portfolio. How much work is involved in, in managing this? It is not set and forget. And that's why really I highlight that it's for that second level investor that wants to do a little more. You can still manage it with as little as one to two times per year touching the portfolio. Um, so it's not going to require that you trade all that often. In fact, every stock you buy should be held for at least a year mm -hmm. uh, for tax purposes. So it's a slow-moving strategy. If you want to just rebalance every December 31st, you could do that uh, quite effectively, and, and it wouldn't require all that much work, maybe a half an hour uh, at the computer with your with your brokerage account open. So what do you get for all this work? What's the net long-term returns of this sort of portfolio? So the returns have been outstanding in the past. And of course, you know, you can never expect the past to, to repeat itself exactly. But this sort of concentrated portfolio, I recommend about 25 stocks or so by these different measures, um, has yielded honestly crazy results. It's it's performed by about nine, outperformed the market by about 9% on an annualized basis over the last 50 years. Now, of course, that doesn't include trading frictions or, or right. taxes or anything like that. So you need to reduce that number in your mind. Uh, but this combination has been powerful. Now, Buffett's outperformed by significantly more than that on an, on an annualized basis. Uh, but that, that, that number is a pretty good starting point. 19% a year for 50 years, that's compounded. Obviously, in an 0809, a portfolio like this is, does this get shellacked as bad as the market or are you buying cheap and it doesn't fall as much? It's it gets shellacked. It's a long only portfolio. It's a stock portfolio, so right. you can expect it to be more volatile. It's not some magic bullet. It will have long. It can have a five year period when it's underperforming the market. Mm -hmm. The key is really sticking with it. Of course, we've had a, a pretty remarkable fifty year periods in in U.S. equity sure. markets. Post war, and, fantastic. And yeah, it's been it's been a great sample in which to test a strategy like this. Um, so my goal is not to anchor people on nineteen percent, which is a, a tremendous return, but rather to show them that it's possible through a rules based strategy to outperform a market based on some you know well-proven principles. And the advantage of outperforming isn't just a couple of percent a year. It's, it's since it's we're talking about youth, we're talking about millennials who have a multi-decade uh, time horizon. 
How does that compound over 30 or 40 years? Forget 10% or 9%. Just outperforming by 3 or 4%, what does that do for you over 30 years? I mean, if you're investing, let's say you're maxing out your 401k or putting some similar amount into a $17,000 a year, which is hard for very hard for, for many young people. Let's say you're putting $5,000 a year away. Mm -hmm. That the difference in two or even two or three percent outperformance can literally mean millions of dollars by the time you're 65 or 70 years 40 old. years down the road, 40 years down the road, because it's peanuts in any given year, two or three percent. But that compounds like the rice doubling on the chessboard that you mentioned earlier to significant sums and big gaps over the long term. So it's it can be very remunerative. We've been speaking with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, author of Millennial Money and Principal at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. If you want to hear more of this conversation, be sure and check out our podcast extras. They're at Bloomberg.com and at Apple iTunes. My regular daily column is at Bloomberg View. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz or check out my blog at Ritholtz.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. All right, welcome back to the podcast. This is the fun part of our show uh, where we let our hairs down and have a little bit of a, a drink and discuss uh, things that we can't talk about on the radio. Um, for those of you who are joining us for some strange reason halfway through the podcast, I'm Barry Ritholtz. My guest is Patrick O'Shaughnessy. A, a little background about how Patrick and I know each other. I actually know Pat's dad for, I don't know, it's got to be like 10 years True story. I don't know if he ever told you this. Our old office, I want to say 10 years ago, was like Park and uh, 50. It was right diagonally across from the Waldorf. And I'm in a Starbucks on Park right near the old Bear Stearns building. Sure. And it was right as he was extricating himself from Bear Stearns a few years before the collapse. I want to say that's like 05, 06. So, like so it was 07 ago. when it was all said and done. But okay. It, it was the machinations had begun. So it was, it was literally about nine or 10 years ago. And we're si I'm having coffee with uh, a friend, and he's at the next table having coffee. At that time, we had both been doing Bloomberg, CNBC, Fox, whatever, and had seen each other around. And uh, we just kind of looked at each other, and he goes, You're, and I go, You're. And so we just started schmoozing, and we were very simpatico about a lot of things, um, evidence-based, rule-driven investing, looking at data. looking. And so we just struck up a, a conversation and started emailing and stayed in touch over the years. And I've had him speak at our conference. We've, we actually have some um, money with, with your dad. And so when you came along and he introduced us, uh, it was kind of interesting. It was like, well, what's this young Turk going to do? This young punk. Having to follow a dad who wrote one of the most seminal books on quantitative investing. And I got to tell you, you did a really nice job. First book. I appreciate this it. This is really, uh, you know, I have a blur. Full disclosure, I have a blurb on the book. And I say, if someone gave me this book when I was in my 20s, I'd be a billionaire today. Yeah, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, maybe not. Um, someone that starts very young might have might have those lucky results. But yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a great relationship. And I'd, I'd say the other thing that we really share, and what I've enjoyed about your writing, is the psychology aspect. Love of, it of markets. I think that really at the at, at its base, that's what this is all about: is figuring out what incentivizes people, what motivates people, and in many cases, trying to do the opposite and, and do that consistently. So you know, it's funny because I began my career on Wall Street as a trader. I didn't go to business school. I went to law school, 
loved law school, hated being a lawyer. And when the opportunity came in the early 90s to jump into finance, I, I jumped at it. And the training essentially consisted of being shoved in the deep end of the pool and being yelled, yelled at, all right, swim. And either you learn to swim or you drowned. It was that sort of training process. But I had a different background. I, like you, um, I had a, a philosophy background, but I also had a lot of math and science. And so I was always looking at, well, here's the hypothesis. Let's either validate it or disprove it. Yeah. And all the stuff you hear on trading desks, uh, most of it is just nonsensical myths that don't stand up to close scrutiny. Well, why is this stock going up? More buyers and sellers. That, that's sort of nonsense. And you talk about a number right. of these, but that's what led me down that path of uh, the explanations I'm being told make no sense whatsoever. There's got to be a better reason why be humans behave this way. Yeah, I think really the only persistent advantage in markets is understanding investor psychology because that's not going to change. That's kind of the one factor that just doesn't change through time. We always react the same way to similar stimuli. And if you understand that, you can do really well. You can build a successful strategy. And so I think the background in psychology, like when we're interviewing people, my, I always sit up a little taller when someone's got a, an interesting background like that because it, it – it brings a unique perspective to markets that's evergreen that will always right. work. Um, so I'm fascinated by the you know million studies that show just how terrible we are, how we're just finding fake patterns all over the place all the time and, and chasing them around. Um, you know we're consistently foolish with our money, and the good news is that for some active investors, that creates persistent opportunities to exploit. Um, and, and you know that's why that's why we have that model-based approach because we can hope to consistently exploit you know behavioral mispricings. It's fascinating. It's almost gotten to the point where behavioral finance and and behavioral economics has become too accepted. Because when I first started exploring this, I want to say 20 years ago. There wasn't a lot of writings that were out there. Dick Thaler had a couple of books. Yep. Um, Thomas Gilgovich up in Cornell. You know, it was before the Kahnemans of the world and the Schillers of the world had won their Nobels. So early on, you had a hunt for information that explained why people were irrational. And the funny part about that is the fundamental premise of economic, I, I am loath to use the word science is that humans are rational, profit-maximizing economic actors when they're not. <laughs> not even close, right? And uh, you mentioned Kahneman, who, who wrote my favorite, probably my favorite psychology book, Thinking Fast and Slow, uh, which isn't just about investing, but it's a great investing book without really meaning to be. He has a term called cognitive mirages, which means even though you might be aware of all these ways you're being irrational, that doesn't stop you from being irrational in the future. It's very, very hard to overcome our biological imperative. Anyone that thinks otherwise should try buying some value stocks because it's very hard to do. Uh, so, so psychology is it's very hard to overcome. It, it's you know if you understand it, you at least have a shot of saying, "Hey, am I doing something wrong here? What what should I be doing instead of what I'm actually doing?" Yeah, sometimes you know I I, I often wonder if some sociopaths would be better investors than the average human. There's an, an awesome there's studies that show that. Yeah, an awesome awesome study called "Lessons from the Brain Damaged Investor," uh, where a researcher at Stanford by the name of Baba Shiv had two groups play a very similar, uh, the same investing game. 20 rounds, single dollar bills. Every round was, you can choose to invest your dollar, hand it over, and I flip a coin. If it comes up heads, you get $2.50. If it comes up tails, I keep your dollar. 
The other option is you just hold on to your dollar and wait 250 for the next round. 250 versus the, well, now why wouldn't you give a dollar every round with well, those Of course, odds? right. So they explained to the participants the math is basic. The expected value of each coin flip is $1.25. You should play every single time. That would be the smartest strategy. So the two groups were these, a normal group of everyday people and a second group who all had brain damage to a very specific part of their brain, the limbic system, that controls emotion, specifically fear. Um, and so these people couldn't feel fear like the average person could. So they had them play this game and they tabulated the results and here's what they found. The brain damaged players played 85% of the time. They weren't perfect, they didn't do the 100% which would be the best strategy, but they played 85% of the time. The normal brain patients only played 57% of the time. And the reason for that was just one thing. After a loss, meaning after they invested their dollar, they lost the coin flip and, and lost their dollar, the next round, which wasn't shouldn't be, it's a coin flip. It's not influenced by the previous round. They only played 41% of the time. That's amazing. So after a loss, again, we talked about it in, on, on the earlier part of the show, after a loss is when we get extra sensitive, which is which is exactly backwards, right? Classic risk aversion is that you feel losses twice as much as you feel the benefit of a gain, and this is, this is a this is a in you know a study example showing exactly that that when you take the emotional part of our brain out, we don't make these same mistakes. And there's countless others examples, but I love that one because it's it's amazing that we make such an ir- clearly irrational decision. The researcher told them that's an irrational wrong decision, and they still and did they it still anyway. did it. Uh, so pretty amazing stuff. That that's fascinating. Uh, we talked a little bit about automated investing, yes, Wealthfront, Betterment, Liftoff personal capital. There, there's so many of them. Uh, they're still a teeny tiny percentage. They, they get a lot of press, but they're a tiny percentage of, of the investable assets. Do you think this is going to expand into something more significant? Is this a millennial sort of thing? Or is this the sort of situation that um, it's going to ha- be a little niche and it's not going to go anywhere beyond that? Um, I think that it will probably consolidate. There, as you mentioned, there's a lot of them out there, and, and they do different things. You know, they have, they have different strengths and weaknesses. But I think the core idea here, which is make investing automatic and extremely easy, and use software to do all the things that we say we should do, but then don't actually do: manage our taxes, make regular investments, don't monkey with our portfolios. It just does it all for you for for fairly affordable fees. I think that concept is here to stay, um, and and some of these companies will be wildly successful, and they're software companies. Uh, they, they've got, of course, strong financial people at the companies, but you know, I, I know Adam Nash, who's the CEO of Wealthfront, pretty well. I've, I've spoken to him a number of times, and the guy is a, is a smart, shrewd software guy uh, with sort of finance as a secondary skill set, and it's, they built a, a pretty incredible product, and I think that those sorts of automated solutions will stick around, and they'll be very good for for millennial investors, because that solution's way better than you know calling your broker looking for a tip, um, like you know say my dad's generation did right. more, more commonly. That's just not a great way to invest. This is smarter, and I think it will last. Makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit about bubbles and global investing. Yeah, we hinted and alluded to the Japanese situation, uh, but it seems that bubbles are a function of our. Post World War II era, we've had we've had the Nifty Fifty in mm-hmm. the late '60s that ended a 20-year run from '46 to '66. We've had the dot-com bubbles. We've obviously seen problems in Europe. We've uh, we've seen the Japanese bubble in '89. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the housing boom and bust in the U.S. 
is this just the nature of capital markets? They go through these sorts of periods? It is. And again, I think it's rooted in psychology. You've got these melt-ups towards the end of these major bubbles, You know, the famous ones like the tulips, uh, the Dutch tulips mania and, and South Sea crisis, et cetera. It happens over and over again. And the, the charts all look the same, right? And, and you can take away the stories and you've got all identical charts. Japan's probably my favorite. I was a big Michael Crichton fan growing up, and he wrote a book about the Japanese corporate takeover of, of America, which in hindsight sounds so silly. Rising uh, Sun? What was yeah, it Land of the Rising Sun yeah. or something, something like that. And Rising Sun, maybe just maybe just that shorter title. And so I, when I dug into the history of the Japanese market, I was just fascinated. What was going on just blew me away. In 1989, the whole market's trading at 90 times earnings. There were certain industries trading at 250 times earnings. I love using the example that if you apply that multiple to you know an enterprising youngster in your life, the lemonade stand, yeah, who makes who has a lemonade stand and makes fifty dollars a day every year. Well, by that math, that, that little lemonade stand would be worth about six million dollars. That's great. Uh, with a similar valuation, and so there was just crazy stuff going on uh, and everyone was terrified that, that in America that the Japanese were going to take over. They bought Rockefeller Center. They were taking all the crown jewels of America back to Japan. And, and there was even one potentially apocryphal story of them overpaying by $200 million for a big landmark. It might have been the Exxon building or something like that just to set the record for the, the highest price paid. That's a good use of shareholder money is to say, <laughs> yeah. we set the record. We, we overpaid the most for a building. Yeah, I think, I think the bottom line is that bubbles happen. Um, they, they happen in large part because of human psychology, which won't change. Uh, and then in the future, when something feels really enticing and you want to be a part of it, like you, know, you might have in 1999 um, or in real estate or whatever the more recent examples are, just stay out of it. Yeah, you might miss out on some great short-term gains, but we know how bubbles end. They all burst. Uh, so just ignore your emotions as much as you can. You know, when we started seeing chatter of China taking over the world. Mm -hmm. I'm old enough to recall the Japanese taking over the world. I'm like, gee, this sounds awfully familiar. The Chinese have been around for 5,000 years. They're, they've perennially been a threat. Why would we think that this time they're going to be any more successful than they've previously been? It just felt so similar to the sort, oh, the Japanese were taking over. It really felt the same. My favorite history book, market history book, is a book called Devil Take the Hindmost. Oh, which, sure. Which chronicles kind of all these ones that we've mentioned. There's a great chapter on Japan. It goes through tulip mania, tons of other examples. Uh, but it is amazing. And it's just the same pattern over and over again, never learning from history, uh, always making the same mistakes as those before us because we can't help ourselves. Well, some people can and some people can. Right. But to be honest, the vast majority of people... When when the animal spirits are running, they're they're joining the herd. It's it's the example I love to give in in a presentation is now I don't know if you in your youth this was on television, but when I was a kid, Sunday nights, Channel Seven, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I mean that's <laughs> today it's the Discovery Channel and Animal Planet, but back in the days of broadcast TV when Marconi had just recently invented radio, that's all we had. Animal Planet uh, didn't exist. Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom was the closest thing. And every show began the same way. It's a vast sea of, of meat on the hoof over the savannas. Million, you'd see these, and they'd zoom in from the aerial shot, and you'd go from the, the earth black with wildebeest. I mean, just... You, and you'd eventually get to a herd of a, a small herd of a few thousand, whatever it was, zebras, gazelles. So usually the gazelle. 
And invariably, one gazelle wanders off from the herd. And then they show you the picture of the lions in the tall grass. And who gets eaten but the gazelle that's not part of the herd. And I think that is the evolutionary basis for why there is safety in numbers, why there is comfort in doing what everybody else does, even when we know it's not right for us. There's good reason we're programmed the way we are, because it's, it's selected it for. We yeah. survived, right? And the, the unfortunate thing is that culture and cultural constructs like markets just evolve a lot faster than our biology. So we can't evolve to keep up um, with the evolution in, in culture. And that puts us at a disadvantage. And so the, my, my suggestion is, if you just remove yourself from the equation, all of those problems will go away. If you don't, you're going to spot fake patterns. You're going to see things that aren't really there. Uh, and you're going to create all sorts of problems. So just get out of just get out of the way and remove yourself from the equation. You talk about the difference between human software and human hardware, and you alluded it to that in that this last statement. The re- repeat the quote that you actually had in the book about that. Yeah. So so my point was that human hardware, our biology, and all the reactions that we have because of our biology evolves a lot slower than our software, which is our culture. Uh, things like markets are, are the best examples, economies, things like that. Um, you might have heard of the term meme, th- cultural mm-hmm. units of cultural evolution that can just move a lot faster because it doesn't require you wait from generation to generation to make incremental changes. The problem is they're at an imbalance today. We're not designed to, sur- to survive and thrive in our current environment. We're designed to, we're kind of stuck in the Stone Age, if you will. In the Savannah. We're, we're, we're sure. optimized for that environment in most ways. And we did really well, obviously. You can see the result of that. We just haven't change much, even though the world has changed a great deal. And now often it does us a disservice because we make all these crazy, irrational decisions. You, you mentioned a book, Devil Takes the Hindmost. The book I'm reading right now is called Last Ape Standing. Mm. And it's about the evolutionary process at one point in time. Over the past, let's call it 4 million years, there have been approximately, at least that we have a fossil record of, 16 various species of humans. And why did we as a group of humans survive when others didn't make it and had to do with our adaptability and our big brains and and our ability to walk upright and a lot of other factors that are great for surviving in an ever-changing world that requires adaptation on the fly, the ability to work with tools, the ability to adapt to changing conditions. All those things are great. All those survival traits are great, but they have nothing to do with making you know, intelligent capital allocation decisions in a system like the capital markets. And the big, I think the biggest of those tendencies is this loss aversion that we've, we've referred to a few times that we're twice as sensitive to losses. If you think about the kinds of errors that we could make 10,000 years ago, let's say we were walking and we saw, you know, a rustle, a, a rustle in the grass or something. One type of error is we could get alarmed and, and, and overly defensive and it could turn out to be nothing call that a little insurance policy that you take heed. You didn't need to, but you did anyway. The second mistake you can make is that you say, ah, it's nothing and it's a lion. (laughs) Right. And guess which one of those two people survived? Well, it's not who survived. It's of those two people. Only one of them are passing their genes along. Exactly. So the the risk aversion, hey, they managed to be around long enough, 15 or 20 years back then, to, to actually have progeny. The people who ignored it, who didn't have that risk aversion- they were lunch. Yeah, and it makes perfect sense, and it just doesn't work in markets, and, and that's too bad. But if we know about it, at least we can adjust to it. So I would be remiss if I did not address something that you spend a long time talking about in the book, 
which is inflation and the erosion of purchasing power. We didn't get to it on the on the broadcast portion. Let let's you had a quote that I really liked in the book. You know, when the Ford Model T first came out, it cost $260. That today buys you a single tire. Yeah, a nice tire, but a single tire. And and that just shows the power over time. It's sort of like death by a thousand cuts. In any given year, inflation is, is hardly ever massive, other than, say, the 1970s when it got to double digits. But even if inflation is 2% per year or 3% per year, it's sort of a hidden tax acting on you behind the scenes that you never really realize until you look back over a lifetime. We mentioned I'm 29 years old. Since I was born, the purchasing power of the dollar back then has about been cut in half. So inflation has slowly eroded the value of a dollar just in my shorter lifetime and will continue to do so. So the key is to position yourself in assets that do well on top of inflation. Inflation plus. Inflation plus. And, and the problem is that all of the assets, especially for millennials, that we think of as the safest that will take cash as cash bonds sure t bills whatever whatever you want to look at are in fact the most dangerous over the long term because inflation kills their return so cash let's take t bills so for, net negative real return let's take t bills for example once you get to 10 20 30 year holding periods and you look back over the last 100 years or so about 40% of those 20 or 30 year holding periods cash actually has a negative real return meaning after you take inflation out of the equation you lose purchasing power and that's what people think of as the safe asset there was occasions when over those long term periods long term bonds again something people think of as safe on a real basis lost more than 40% over a 30 year period and that's crazy that is not a safe 40%. place 40% that is not a safe place for your money cuz inflation was slowly working against it meanwhile stocks, even after inflation, have never even had in the U.S. a 20-year period of negative real return. So even if you had invested on the eve of the crash in 1929 and then done nothing and came back 20 years later, you still would have eked out a positive 6% return. It's not a great return, but it's positive. And the same cannot be, the same cannot be said of cash and bonds over the longer term. So inflation is key to pay attention to. And we're talking about the pernicious compounding effect yes. of even something as low as 2% over the course of 30 or 40 years. You know, we as kids, we used to make fun of my father and our parents who always used to give us the story, listen, when I was your age, <laughs> for a nickel, we could go to the movies. For a quarter, we could go to the beach, we could get two hot dogs, fries, a soda, and still have money left over for a matinee. And today, all that stuff is fill in the blank. Right. And the joke is, as you hit a certain age, and you're not there yet, and I'm just about there yet, you could look back 20, 30 years and say, I remember when you know movies were a dollar, 15 bucks for a movie. That's crazy. Yeah. It's it's. But this is really a pernicious drag on returns that are not achieving. Any sort of nominal, uh, I'm sorry, any sort of real return. Yeah, and most of the time you hear the stock market long term returns 10%. Well, not really. Once you take inflation out of there, it's more like 65 or 7%. Uh, and that's a huge difference over the sure. long term. And and same thing with, with cash. Oh, you hear maybe 3%. Well, not when inflation is 4% per year for 30 years. Um, so it, it's it's behind the scenes. It's hidden, but you need to pay attention to it. How, how does the fact that we're living in a deflationary era impact that? Or is this merely a temporary phenomena. 
Um, I am certainly no expert on on you know the drivers of inflation. I'm a little suspect that that anyone is. I don't know that anyone has a complete picture of what drives inflation over the longer term. I do know that once once we've left the gold standards and has been kind of moved to a global fiat money system, inflation has been the norm over longer periods of time, uh, because there's no real control. And I'm not an advocate of a gold standard or anything like that. Well, it but, made sense at one time. I, I can't imagine anyone really believing it makes sense. Did anyone without large gold holdings right. believing that going back to the gold standard makes any sense today? Right. But I think there's some compelling evidence that explosion in, in the supply of money sure. can, can lead to inflation over time. And I don't think we're going back to a gold standard. I don't think we should. Uh, but but with a fiat money system, I think, comes long-term real inflation that will, will be important for millennials. It, it's something that you have to recognize as reality. Even 2% is a drag and have to plan around. And that means having a, a substantial slug of your investment portfolio in A, equities, and B, global equities that meet the characteristics that, that you described earlier. And that's doubly true for young people who have a long time ahead of them. They don't need this money anytime soon. That should be the goal is they're setting it aside and forgetting about it. Um, and so that's doubly true for young people. Anything else you want to touch on that we haven't gotten to before uh, I release you out into the wild? Uh, this has been really great. I appreciate I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on the show. I love the show. Uh, I think we've covered good ground. I'm I'm glad we had a a the opportunity to talk about things that apply to millennials. You know, a, a lot of what we do on the show seems to be geared to people who are either professionals or have uh, been investing for a while or 50-something or 60-something-year-olds. And, uh, you know, that blurb was was heartfelt. It's the sort of thing that I wish I knew about in my 20s. My 401k would be substantially larger. My investment portfolio would be substantially larger had I started even 10 years earlier. This is the major bummer about investing is that everyone that's interested in it has squandered the advantage of youth, typically, and that young people just aren't worried about it. They're not thinking about it. It's not on their minds. It's not a pressing concern. It's very hard to think a year ahead, let alone 40 years ahead. Uh, the sad paradox is that the most potent time to start is when you're young. That's the time when people tend to care the least. What One last psychological study which is really fascinating. So people have a real hard time understanding time, understanding their own mortality, understanding you have a, a finite window. They did a study, I'm trying to remember the, the economist slash psychologist who did the study, where they explained essential, here's what it's going to cost to live and here's your income. And they explained all these things logically and try to get people to say, hey, I'm willing to put this much money away every um, month. And they ended up getting a relatively small amount. Then they used a software where they took a picture of their face and digitally aged it to show here. By the way, here's what you're going to look like when you're 70 to 80 years old. The photo, vastly more effective than logically explaining. And they would get people to commit far more monthly savings wow. because suddenly it becomes real. Oh, I'm going to be old one day and not working, and I need to have some income to live on and not rely on Social Security. And it just goes to show you how easy we are to be 
fooled, manipulated, or nudged into doing the right thing. That is amazing. I, I, I had not encountered that study, and it's always fun to hear about a new one. And it, I think, again, highlights what we've been saying, which is appeal to emotion <laughs> uh, more than anything, and you can get people to act. You know, show them a bunch of abstractions and numbers and software. It's not all that compelling, but say, hey, here's what you're going to have to— Here's what you're going to look this like. This is what you're really going to be dealing with, and all of a sudden they act. That's an right. ama- amazing study. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for coming by. It's been a pleasure having you. Um, we'll get this edited together and out on the weekend. For those of you um, who want to check out the rest of the series, you can go to Apple iTunes. All, all 25 previous Masters in Business are posted there. We have a great lineup coming up with the rest of the year. I'm really excited about some of the names that, that you'll see. Uh, in fact, coming up next week, we have our interview with Bill Gross. Uh, that'll be posted in one or two parts starting, I want to say, January 14th. Um, Check out my daily column on Bloomberg View. The blog is at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.